Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Rob, the executive vice president at Virtru, and they discuss how Virtru empowers people to have control over who has access to their data, how it's becoming possible to offer better user experiences without compromising security, and reclaiming the ideals of data sovereignty and true ownership. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How long have you been on the internet? So I, it's all just telling, I'm 39. So I, I kind of, I was born in 82, which is really interesting. I'm in between two generations, right? Generation X and the millennial generation, which allowed me to see a lot of things like pre-cell phone and pre-accessible like mobile hardware and things of this nature. And it's given me the ability to both be really interested, but also have learned a lot from the era where there wasn't as much accessible education right, for everybody. So we're um, not to say that made it easier, it just made us think differently. So in my career, um, I'm kind of like uh, maybe a topical term here, patient zero in my family for technology, right? In many ways. And in that boundary area where I just get really interested in it early, 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 like middle school forward. And this is when we're just programming PI-82 calculators and <laughs> doing what we can, uh, getting access to what hardware we could is very inaccessible, helping my school get grants to get computers like that is kind of my origin origin story. But what it really allowed me to do is just be really, really interested in seeking out information wherever it is, right? Whether I'm connecting to people over the early internet or local groups. But at that time, it was just really about access to information. And I found um, that through that early kind of that stage of it, I got I developed a skill for explaining it to people. Right. Because I had to. And I realized that I have a bit of a um, empathy for the end user. Right. So at the end of the day, um, that right there and that empathy for the end user really shaped my career. So I obviously went to university for um, comp sci and management information systems, kind of the merger of those two at the time and kind of jumped headlong into healthcare. So a lot of my early career is healthcare been a CIO in some acute care hospital spaces, building solutions, really understanding, can we bring technology to these people that are actually taking care of people, right? Not viewing it punitively. And I think you'll, maybe this will come out in some of my philosophy, but I've, I've always hated, hated the strong word. I've always disliked how technology is always so punitive. Like there's the, the technology camp and then there's the user camp and those are far apart and one throws stone at the other. Like I always, I just disliked that. I disliked that heavily. So in my formative kind of early years in the healthcare industry, it was, look, I'm here to enable them in whatever way possible, because they're the ones that have the, the mission, the core mission of taking care of the patient. And that was really helpful to me. And it made me realize that I wanted to be a part of organizations that really understood that user experience side of it, the empathy side of technology, because you have all of these uh, IT leaders, you have all of these uh, mission owners, I'll call them mission owners inside of organizations that 
they understand technology, but they really are there for another business purpose. And the two have to come together to be greater than the sum of the, the, the individual parts. That's really a different perspective. And um, that's kind of how I came up in kind of uh, engineering and then eventually product management. And then I kind of went to the dark side and uh, took on a role inside the vendor early days here at Virtue because that initial conversation was really combining two of my loves, which is privacy, right? Like enabling collaboration through privacy, not punitively, and the end user empathy, making sure that we understand that they're not there to install security software. The security software and the IT workflow is there to enable the business and the two have to work together kind of harmoniously, right? So, and all along the way, a lot of entrepreneurial adventures like you, where small startups, some consulting businesses along the way, some successful, some really not. (laughs) Uh, A lot of learning and that's kind of what landed me here today uh, at Virtue and in my current role within Virtue. It's kind of freeing when you get comfortable with failure, right? Oh, you have to, right? Like, I mean, I may, I think you would agree, right? But this is a really good field to get comfortable at failure because even just implementing an algorithm, how many times am I going to go and compile error, debug, compile error, debug? It's like constant small iterative failures. And like, if you emotionally can't respond to that well, this is a really bad track for you. Yeah, it's called red, green, refactor. It's not called green, green, <laughs> <Yes>. green. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think I think it's a good field for organ for people that kind of get comfortable with failure and see it as a chances at bat. Right. Statistically, I'm going to try to increase my chances at bat so that I get to an effective solution uh, faster, as opposed to trying to design for perfection and and then much longer time has passed and then I drop and it fails, right? That's a terrible cycle. And that, but that used to be the cycle, right? So now failure is a much more accepted term. That's how I do my budgeting too at the business as an entrepreneur. Like I manage my PL. Like I want to optimize for continued existence. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Dude, this is great. You're smart. I like you. <laughs> I don't know about that. I appreciate you saying that, but I think it's a constant learning. You, you can appreciate what I mean by that, right? Like always trying to learn. It's the persistence, right? Because there's smart people who are successful and there's stupid people who are successful, but the commonality is that they don't give up. Right. I, I, I do think, you know, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'll try to get the intent of it. But it was Buffett that fundamentally said, like, uh, a, an idiot with a plan is better than one without, right? Something like that. <laughs> And like the plan is just resilience and persistence, right? To some degree, um, but it doesn't mean to latch on to an idea that continually fails. I think that right there in the middle is the hard part because sometimes people define persistence as like, well, I'm trying this thing and I'm just going to keep trying this thing. That, I see that all the time, right? Versus persistence in the overall mission vision and changing the experiments to achieve that. I got, that's really high level, obviously. Implementation means different things, but persistence is absolutely important, important. And I would say I would credit a lot of my career success, however you define success. To me, I define it as I'm still here and being able to contribute <laughs> as resilient and persistent. I would agree with you. Yeah. I always get into that too. And people are like the last for advice or insight and I'm like persistence, but you have to understand some like fundamentals, like the scientific method, because if yes. your persistence against a formula that is going to fail always, then th- there's that little, that's the spice of life, that magical part where like, I can't 
tell someone exactly how to do it for their business because you have to be living in real time in the variables and you just kind of have to want to wake up every day and figure it out. Yeah. I, I think your audience would appreciate this. I don't want to put words in your mouth and I'd love for you to confirm or completely deny this, but like you, like I struggle with that. Like I get into a mode where I'm like, this is it. This is the way I feel in my gut. This is where we're going, but the data doesn't prove that. And I find myself having to step back and go, no, <laughs> stop for a moment and let's try something else. So like, it's a constant battle. I don't know anybody that's perfect at it. I think the key is to surround yourself with a team that's willing to be vulnerable in that, in that, in that question so that you can all come together and agree on a, a iteration, if you will. I hate, you, I hate the word pivot. Pivot's so overloaded these days, but <laughs> an iteration. Um, and it, and no one, no one is like hung out when you have to make that iteration. That's the best possible team composition, whether you're like a two-person shop or you got thousands of employees. It doesn't really matter. The equation's the same. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. The part that you just mentioned about the right team or putting that team together that was a part I failed at for a long time. Like I had the drive, I had vision, I could, you know, push things forward and work, you know, infinite hours and like make it happen. But the moment I realized the value of having someone like amazing on your team, uh, and they don't, I, I thought for a long time that they had to be entrepreneurs because right. I, I was just biased to myself and who I am. And sure. so I'm like, how am I going to get another entrepreneur? No, you just have to, you, I just need more experience. I just need to meet more people. And, right. and understand the different types of people out there and then how to configure the different types of people to get a great outcome. And then yeah. I'm like, what is this? And they're like, it's management. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh I was like, this is leadership. <laughs> Just configuring the people to get the right outcome. It's, a, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting in 2021, what we've seen over the last decade, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to attribute this, the name escapes me, but, you know, you want to go fast, go alone, you want to go far, go together. You know, uh, we're at a really interesting stage where I don't even know what go alone means anymore, right? So when I say go alone, I'm using tools, I'm using um, bodies of content online. I feel like everyone's a part of my team, even though I, I might be a solopreneur, right? Where, but I don't know marketing, right? Or something like that, where I may go look at this individual's content and use that content. Well, you, you've just basically accepted your strength and weaknesses and you brought on a team member, even though they're not on your team. So it's a really interesting time for entrepreneurship. And it has been for a long time. This is not new to this year, right? But I totally resonate with what you're saying. It's really hard to collect that team, empower that team um, to do the things that, you are not necessarily the best at so that that collective sum is better. And I think one of the best things you, you probably did once you got over the hump is like you were able to set an effective vision, right? At the end of the day, so that everyone can say, is what I'm working on contributing to that goal? And is that goal contributing to that vision? That connective tissue is critical. It's also one of the hardest things to do, but I'm sure that was part of your, your journey to some degree when you were starting to build that team. Always. And I'm yeah. always trying to figure out how to do it better now. Like, for example, we just built this tool, this like survey tool. We partnered with an organizational psychologist. And now we're doing these surveys where it tells us the strengths and weaknesses like of our team as a whole Absolutely. and then individuals. But it's not like we didn't just go pick some methodology off the shelf and we're like, we're just going to run this because a lot of them that we found where it's like, okay, 
knowing that they communicate this way, that's great. But there's like nothing actionable behind it. It's just like, okay, Bob communicates this way. Sarah communicates. It's like, okay, they're a green thinker. They're a red. It's like, that's great. But I wanted something that, because I'm so entrepreneurial and action focused. I'm like, I want something that I want to give my people a survey. And then I want it to give me some sort of action, something useful like in relation to that. And so we just built it and started giving it out for free to some of our past guests like two weeks ago. Oh, that's great. Uh, and there you are, you're further refining kind of the processes that other people are using, right? This is part of the process. So yeah, I, I needed to grow my business. <laughs> there was a, a need there that compelled action, right? Exactly. You always got to have that. Yeah, no, I love this conversation. I appreciate you allowing me to take that side channel to talk about entrepreneurship. It's such a, a passion of mine. So I do think it's it's relevant as well, though, because if you look at some of the just more traditional or institutional security, infosec, IT uh, world, these principles apply right there as well. And I think we'll get into that today for sure. But you you do have this real historical institutional decision-making process, um, sometimes led by uh, PTSD from not being a part of the budgetary process in the past or not having a seat at the table. So you're just trying to claw and get what you can um, because you know that you're not necessarily a priority. And so we've seen these cycles over the years where like major breach curve or major new zero day and everybody's like, and then the the meme comes out where like the CEO is saying, Hey, um, security and it, do you want to sit at the, at the adult table? Right. You've seen this meme. Like I'm sure if we looked at this from like Google trends or history, it'd be like, like this, right. You would see it throughout the year. And I appreciate that because it gets a little bit of momentum in that time. But, you, you know, no one's really thinking about the psychological health of these CTOs, CIOs and CISOs inside of organizations, because when they're in that trough, they're making decisions to get what they can, not necessarily optimizing for what's best for the organization at that current time and into the future. Right. So if you took a more entrepreneurial approach, and you're just always taking a look at your technical stack and saying, is this the right composition for today and tomorrow? Is this right? And just doing that, moving that window, right? If you really were able to do that, I don't necessarily think some of the budgetary decisions would be made the way they are today. And I don't necessarily think some technology would make it into that technical stack. Uh, But they're just trying to get what they can. And I'm sensitive to that, having been in that role and and now serving a lot of these individuals within Virtue. So we so easily forget about that um, kind of psychological side and of those individuals having to put that together and make decisions inside their organizations, not necessarily having the priority they should, right? And and I really appreciate that. I don't know if you kind of get that from talking to a lot of your guests, but it's something that I think about a lot. Yeah, every organization is incredibly unique, right? Yes. And but one of the things I was curious about was like, how do you explain this to people? You maybe at a kid's soccer game or something, and they ask you, you know, what does virtue do? What do they do? Yeah, no, I I appreciate that question. It it is only evolved at the edges over the years. The core values are the same, so I really appreciate that. Most organizations, I think, have a trouble staying with their core values over time and decisioning from them. But effectively, um, the hypothesis or the thesis goes like this, right? Data is the fundamental common denominator in almost all transactions, whether that's an email to you about a party I want to invite you to on the weekend or an email to the organization that I'm entering into an M&A window with, right? 
I'm exchanging data with you, right? And we believe that that data and your ability to selectively control who has access and under what condition is empowering, right? Fundamentally, my ability to say, I want to freely give this to these individuals so that we can do business at the speed of the market without worrying about what's going to happen after this window of importance is, is over. Uh, does it, you know, that is a very empowering concept, right? So this is a key philosophy difference from the punitive era where cryptography and some of these solutions, while if, unless you were kind of in the cohort of individuals going to key exchange parties, like, okay, so I was, but I'm, I'm, I'm like a small cohort, right? Unless you were in that group, everyone else is like, view these as kind of punitive only technologies. We're imposing this on the user base, not viewing it as a way to give the, uh, the company more collaborative abilities. So at our core, we are a privacy and data centric security company built to enable faster and more pervasive collaboration for organizations without having to worry about who has access and under what conditions. And that takes the form of email, files, uh, platform SDKs for your own application. And you can imagine how that can evolve into other uh, product instances, but at our core, that is really what we do. And of course, from that compliance, international regulatory requirements, of course, those stem from that core value, but our core value is, is, is really that. What's your like top line of business, like your largest or second largest line of business? A little bit of company origin story there will educate, will kind of explain that when we were first kind of forming our CTO at that time um, brought out some core technology to enable what I just said. I want to share to you as quickly as possible without worrying about where that data's got to go to get to you or where it'll go afterwards. And he was um, in agency at the time trying to serve this for forward operated uh, warfighters, right? And then uh, he did very, was very successful and was able to build that specification, what we call our trusted data format or TDF. The bridge from there to commercial product decisions, like right, what's a pervasive communication medium that um, is not going anywhere and has not historically had this problem solved for? And it was email. That's where we first started, right? Was can we do an end-to-end data-centric solution that people will actually use and adopt and achieve those core values I just discussed? So because of that, you know, we really iterated on the user experience, trying to get that adoption up there. And because of that, um, you know, email is one of our larger books of business, email protection, data-centric protection, enabling those communication channels. Um, and we also have file collaboration, file exchange solutions, and an underlying platform that's enabling a lot of amazing things from like container security, multi-party secure analytics, and just enabling tech companies or companies in general to bake our, those values I just indicated into their own applications. But kind of, kind of in that order, is the composition of our business. And we have organizations, you know, ranging from small organizations up to multinational uh, enterprises, large, large organizations, hundreds of thousands of users. So like, how do you explain it to somebody who's like, just kind of a casual user? Like, is it like a really secure, do you have like a really secure Dropbox style thing for corporates? Is, is it something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, it, it, it really sensitive to the personas involved, right? So like if you're a regular end user, um, you know, the way I think about that is your job may be, let's just like use an example, like your job may be to uh, work with the public on exchanging their personal information, maybe for health claims or something like that, right? So your job is to do that, right? 
your job is not necessarily to remember all the things you have to remember about compliance or regulatory needs or to worry about control of that after the fact. So I, I explain it that we are kind of an end-to-end solution that uh, is integrated directly into your experience. So if you're composing an email, we're right there. And when you protect that, when you enable that solution, you never have to worry about it again. And you can see at any moment who has accessed it, when they access it, and if you need to revoke it, you can. But all you really have to do is send an email. Our UX bar is very high, right? Or if you're um, a data scientist, right? Like if you're in that particular cohort or a DevOps team that um, has these same concerns, I really discuss it more of the um, from the perspective of enabling it within your existing pipeline, not having to worry about uh, where that data goes into and out of your pipeline. And because of that, you should be able to gain access to more data to achieve your job. You don't have to worry about all the regulatory or contract requirements, those, those high bars to get that data into what your core job is, which is getting intelligence from that data, right? So it depends on the persona, but those are two really far ends of the spectrum where I explain two different things, but the fundamental core values are the same. So when people are like your customers are trying to find you, what are they searching for? It, it varies, right? So, so one end of the spectrum, um, compliance, right? Like, so GDPR, CCPA, HIPAA, PCI, or intellectual property protection, where like they're really concerned about one, one, one pillar there is just, am I achieving the always evolving data protection and privacy standards of my particular industry? So healthcare, HIPAA, you know, things of this nature, or the global standards for GDPR and, and, and now regional with CCPA. Then you shift over into kind of a different tier, which is like um, highly sensitive transactions. So you can imagine, right? I'm in the middle of an M&A transaction. I'm looking for a way to protect this data during a window of time. I have intellectual property. I'm looking to protect that intellectual property and exchange that. That's another cohort there. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, really thinking about, excuse me, ITAR is another compliance regulation that's very specific to us as well. And the, and the far end of the spectrum, it's really about secure analytics. Can we do multi-party analytics and things of this nature um, in a secure way? I don't understand that last part, multi-party analytics. What type sure. of analytics? Yeah, I'd love to, let's talk about this. So this is a newer area, if you think about it like this. In fact, let's just use the, uh, let's use the pandemic as an example, right? Um, it's not maybe the best example, but there's, there's other ones we can go to if this doesn't resonate, right? The value of being able to respond and re this response is the same when we're talking about, we'll talk about InfoSec in a bit, just responding to incidents and threats, but effectively imagine the, you know, March or February, March of 2019, um, where we're trying to determine what's going on, right? Well, the reality is there's a lot of models for this, but the data wasn't available. How do I get that data, right? Well, what's happening there is all these different cohorts, right? So this academic institution, this government institution, this local state institution, they have to collaborate, right? But they have to do so in a way that doesn't just violate everyone's data rights, right? Um, how do you do that? How do we work together in a way that allows me, the data owner, to contribute to you, all these parties, my personal information, and trust that everyone's only gonna do with it what they say they're gonna do with it, right? Effectively, right? So, so multi-party analytics effectively says the following, right? I've got multiple parties that want to um, assert some type of uh, control or access to a cohort of data. This is my personal data, and I want to do so in a way that I can revoke at any time 
right? At the very least, see what's going on, right, with that data. This is really important. So if you can do that, then you can lower the concern for me, the data owner, for contributing that data. And you give me the power to kind of like hit that red button at any moment if I want to pull that data back. But the empowering thing is because when you can do that, all of these parties that we have trusted with um, knowing what's going on now have access to the data to tell us what to tell us what they recommend, right? Uh, what can we do? What should we do? How do we mitigate this issue faster? That collaboration is not happening effectively today, and the you know federal commercial crossover or within organizations, there's just a bunch of data silos that exist. And there's these long drawn out contractual um, processes to agree on. What are you going to do with the data when I give it to you? After you, after you're done with it, what are you going to do with it? Right? These are all just lang this is all just language in a the contract. There's no technical enforcement, right? So, you know, confidential, secure, multi-party analytics is really about empowering that world where the data is accessible and people have control and sovereignty over that data, even when contributed to other people. Did you hear the episode where I interviewed uh, Tim Berners-Lee? I feel really terrible that I missed that, but uh, no. <laughs> big fan, big fan, yeah. loosely following his work in his new institution. And this, you know, he, I think he looked back on <laughs> the origin and says, you know, I know now what we can do moving forward, right? Which is exciting. Well, so what he described when I talked with him, his solid framework, the description was like virtually I, oh, my producer just slacked us. He's like, that's not released yet. <laughs> you couldn't have listened to it. Yeah. The episode's not even released yet. Oh, okay. Well, I will be listening to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that I looked, I thought that I just missed that one. I'm glad that I didn't, uh, a big fan, but like, you know, he's speaking to the same problems, right? Like with this big data situation we have today, um, and the situation is fundamentally is there's a promise and the promise is, is we're going to get a lot of intelligence from this data and how tech is, is we move very quickly and we solve the problem with not without necessarily thinking about the implications of it. And that's okay. Cause those can be disconnected until they need to be connected. That's how we maintain innovation in many ways. But what if, right? What if we can do so in a way? that they don't have to be disconnected and you don't lose the ability to gain access to the data. I think that is a real future and one that I'm very excited about. Have you dove deep on a solid framework? Uh, early days. Uh, I understand the intent and kind of, uh, but not necessarily like the mathematical detail of it yet, but I, in, you know, have been following the initiative and, and I expect to dig deeper into that. I've been, uh, so many rabbit holes to go down these days. <laughs> yeah. So the reason why I think this is a rabbit hole worth exploring is, yeah. and I don't know, I don't know what it was early days. All sure. I know is like, I researched it before he came on the show and yeah. they have a business and they've got, you know, yep. employees and people and they're working with governments to help, you know, with this. And, uh, but the concept of like the solid framework with this, these pods, these like personal on demand storage yeah. and the way that he described it in the, and they're building like infrastructure and plumbing, right? Yeah, so exactly. people can do this. Exactly. Uh, it just sounded so similar to like what you guys were doing. I think you could get some inspiration from uh, their framework. Oh, without a doubt. And I think our, our core underlying standard and specification, the TDF, like it is designed to be portable such that um, when you combine, if you think about, 
if you think about data encryption for a moment, encryption is such a generic term, right? But when you think about encryption plus empowering a business workflow, right? It's combining a couple of things. It's combining cryptography in a way that ensures that only authorized parties have access. But also, how can I bake into that the intent and that policy so that wherever it goes, um, it follows it, right? Like at the end of the day, that is what the TDF does. Underlying all of what we do is, say when you're composing an email, right? And you're filling out the two CC and BCC fields, right? You're building a policy. You're saying these individuals are the only ones that have access. And when you click send, it doesn't matter where it goes, right? Like it could go through 30 intermediate MTAs and none of them have access because that device, that entity, or the human beings along the way can't access it, right? That is, you know, to his framework, really what needs to happen. You have to come back to me, the owner, and say, I would like access. Are you okay with that? That's a phenomenally empowering thing. You know, where we focused around user experience was can when those requests are coming back, can we make it accessible to the user? I think these are things that are important to answer longer term. So the applications that build on top of our stack and the applications built on his stack, they have to answer those questions, right? So when you come back and you want to request data or you're having an exchange with another individual built on that framework, it's the user experience to make it accessible because much like any other InfoSec solution historically, it's too noisy or I don't get the notification or the, whatever notification means in that essence, or I don't understand it, then it won't get adopted. And that was really a big part of our origin story was you have, we've had PGP, we've had SMIME, we've had cryptography a long time, very strong cryptography, right? But um, implementation and usability was so low that I could be a CISO or CTO in an organization trying to make a decision. I know, excuse me, I know end-to-end -end solutions are the best, meaning end-to-end -end from me, the data owner, to the recipient, the only authorized party. I know that's the best, right? But if I implement this solution, let's say I implement PGP, and no one uses it, right? Because a workforce that has a job to do when faced with an obstacle that is not directly necessary to enabling their job in that moment, we'll bypass that. Like they're very creative, right? You know, it. they're very creative. And you know what? I don't blame them, right? So we, we really have to solve that. So if you think about the future, if you think about a lot of like modern stacks that are trying to solve the data sovereignty issue, you know, this is the crux. This is part of the crux of it, setting aside some of the really deep in the weeds, uh, technical things for scale and things of this nature, but people have to use it. And we can't lose sight of that, you know, as a technician, if you will, I, I like to go down the technical rabbit holes, but we can't lose sight of that uh, user experience piece. That's right, because that's your adoption and that's the business model. You, no one's going to pay and renew for something that no one uses. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and then just from a societal perspective, right? Like setting, setting aside business plans for a moment, right? If, you know, we want to get broad adoption of something with or without monetization, it's the same equation effectively, right? People have to need to use it up to a point such that whether that be a network effect locally or maximally, takes place, right? So user experience with or without monetization is still critical uh, in this space. Yeah, for me as a user, I, I'm pretty um, 
I'm hard. I'm hard on products. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <Right>? Same here. Because <laughs> I, I can, I can switch my profile and my brain. It's like an operating system, like multiple users. I can be the user that's like non-technical that just wants it easy. And and that person, like, it's gonna, it's got to be baked in. It's got you have to bake this into my experience. Like when I onboard at the company, you have to give me a tool set and whatever security you want me to use needs to happen without me even knowing it. Right. I just need to be able to like go there or or somehow, you know, be very, very easy in the flow of my work. Where it's just like I hit send, but it like confirms that these are the people. I'm like, all right, cool. And you would, you know, but don't bury it in a menu somewhere. I'm gonna have to go select permissions. Like it, it would have to be set up in a way that like where you don't make me think. I can just continue and interact with these other humans because I'm trying to do a higher level. I'm just thinking of sales right now. I'm trying to do like a higher level order of of operation. Yeah. So so absolutely, right? And doesn't that doesn't that totally make sense, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you can only educate people um, and educates. Again, I'm, it's too strong a word. I'm not trying to say they, they lack knowledge. I'm saying you're taking them from where they are to where um, the current technology is or where it will be. You, people can only go so fast, right? So if I want to impose a tremendous amount of burden on you as a, as a user, the value has to be disproportionately larger than the burden I'm about to impose on you, right? So constantly, we're trying to find the appropriate equilibrium there so that you can get a portion of people to move forward within. So, so within some kind of smaller um, group, whether that's a company or a nation or a globe, it doesn't matter, right? At the end of the day, that equation is true. And in, in our world, so I say our world, just in the world, uh, in the very specific kind of tactical infosec threat mitigation world, um, historically, I kind of talked earlier about making decisions to kind of pull forward technical solutions just for the sake of it, because you're trying to capture budget and you're trying to, con to conserve what you have because you know, you may not get exactly what you need, but you've got to have something because you're, you're kind of up against it. Right. Um, you don't necessarily think about it the way I just said, like now, now that's changing, but why is it changing? Right. In many ways it's changing because there's a kind of a crossroads of users like yourself, so the, the growing population of knowledge workers and entrepreneurs and people within organizations that are like, I demand something different, right? And that's great, right? Um, and the threat landscape, those two coming together, right? And kind of the rising tide of the last year, right? <laughs> Breaches and work from home. That nexus is really what I think is unique. And I haven't seen before coming together all at the same time. Like I've seen components of it, but never at the exact same time, which is why I'm really excited because you're starting to see in many places, large ecosystem providers, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, et cetera, start adopting an extensibility mindset so that organizations like ourselves and others can deliver the experience you expect without sacrificing the security. And to be honest with you, uh, clearly this is important to me, but that's magical, right? That's the combination of where I have just simply more tools as a technical operator to deliver the experience I want. Nothing can be more exciting, you know, in, in my opinion. So, Tell me about some of these disasters, right? Like things that happen when people don't encrypt their data. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, let's just, let's, let's not even go far back in time. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about solar winds for a moment. Right. 
two perspectives of solar winds, right? Um, two categorical perspectives. I think we can talk about. One is the paradigm shift in the way you have to think about attack vectors, and the other being, okay, now it's happened. What can I do, right? That's not the only pillars. I'm just providing like two perspectives that I think are worth discussion, right? Um, maybe we talk about the second one first, right? One is uh, we know over some timeline the likelihood of exfiltration or breach is 100%, right? It is 100%. If I am in existence long enough as an individual or a company, it will happen. Um, that's a powerful statement that I think some leaders background in their mind and ignore and others embrace. And I'm not saying embrace it because like you're going to make a lot of changes right now. It's always a risk revenue. It's a combination of all these decisions all the time. And I'm, I'm sensitive to that. But in this particular situation, other ones like it, once that data is out, there was no answer. I have no, I have, I have no way to come back in and say, where is it? Who's trying to access it? Can I apply control to it? because you've contributed to an ecosystem of solutions under a condensed set of vendors, right? Maybe like two vendors involved here, really, if you think about it, right? And um, they didn't have an answer. The data was removed from their control, right? And there was no, no way to respond to that. So I think if you think about that for a moment, that is frightening, right? For, 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 for many reasons, but the, that's what can go wrong. The other perspective, and then we can kind of get into kind of like mitigative solutions to that if, if you want to brainstorm on that a bit. But the other is like the paradigm shift. Like we bring forward legacy solutions and legacy categories. So if I'm not going to talk ill of any category here. Um, every, every category of, of security solution has a place, but I'm just going to mention a few things, right? Not necessarily comparing the two, but like say, I'm always going to bring forward antivirus technology, right? I'm going to bring it forward. That takes up X amount of the, ah, I got so much budget, right? But if you think about this paradigm shift here, where like none of that mattered and the, and the thing I'm going to get access to is the data. What of your technology stack that you bring forward addresses that problem, right? Where I'm going to get your data I've done so during a, via a vector that bypasses 99% of your technical stack today. And then you look at the composition of your technical stack and, and, and you ask the question of yourself, how much of this was actually and truly focused on the one common denominator that is true no matter what SaaS vendor I'm using to enable my workforce. And it's the data, right? At the end of the day, right? Those two things are the eye-opening moment Right. In my opinion, everybody's going to have their own opinion about this, of course. Those two perspectives are the kind of eye opening moment for that particular series of events and that are still unfolding. Right. This is not over with. Right. It's just a level of sophistication that was very eye opening for the industry. Yeah. How do you think about that? Does that seem to resonate with kind of how you think about it as well? <laughs> have you heard that? You get to say it a lot, right? So to you, it kind of just becomes this thing that you you say and you talk. But man, hearing it for the first time, yep, it makes the most sense. It's like just go, it's like a root cause analysis or like a think, you know, first principles concept of physics. It's like just go to the root and let's just let's just encrypt the root. And somebody even steals it. That's fine as long as this policy can, as long as there's some 
system that can manage this. And I think that's what you're alluding to with your, um, your TDM. Is that what you called it? TDF. Yeah. TDF. TDF. Uh, trusted data format. Yeah. First principles. Like, I think you nailed it. I think, um, given your background, first principles are core to how you've been successful, kind of going back to, I, I can only imagine you attaching to the real estate industry. And I, I can only imagine several conversations in that environment where they said to you, Oh, I didn't think about it that way. And that's what resulted in your product. Right. I can only imagine that's how it went out, Right. So those first principles are, I think, how we have to increase agility in the security world, that lateral divergent thinking about what I've done before won't necessarily equal success in the future. It's true in markets. It's true in everything, almost everything, right? Past performance does not guarantee future performance. And if we were being honest with ourselves, past performance, it's trending poorly, right? Because breaches are going this way. <laughs> Costs for breaches are going this way. And eventually, we're going to reach a crossroads where the ability to subsidize those breaches uh, will not be possible, right? Now, I want to get to a solution before that. I want to get to that solution before the pain that gets imposed on everyone can't be subsidized, right? Get to that point where when your credit card is breached, the credit card company comes to you and starts really questioning whether they need to pay you back or not, right? That's a bad, that's, that's, that's a bad place to be in the future. But if you follow the trend, eventually we, now people are going to argue this, but eventually we have to get there because you can't just pay infinite. You can't subsidize value creating um, streams forever. Um, it's eventually becomes unequitable, right? You go out of business. <laughs> you go out of business. That's right. You go out of business. So, I mean, in, in, in those tracks, I think, the data-centric approach has never been more accessible than it is today. And if more organizations and individuals and practitioners, and you're seeing this, right? You hear zero trust, you hear these concepts and data-centric approaches are a clear component of zero trust, a component. It's, it's, you know, it's a framework, it's not a solution, zero trust, right? But if you think about protecting the data itself, we get more, um, of the practitioners and organizations compelling that plus acceptable user experience, then you start seeing change in um, the solutions that are offered. Because again, at the end of the day, to your point, people are providing solutions for to sell to organizations and they want to meet the problem with a solution that's compelling for the user. So we're seeing this trend go up and to the right. And we're working tightly with um, ecosystem partners like Google to say, let's work together, right? They love your products to enable their business. We clearly have a problem with the data leaving ecosystems and it's not your fault. You're absolutely security professionals, but can we work together to deliver an experience that also gives them the control over the data so that when, not if that data leaves, they can see it happening where it's at and provide some kind of like textual control, right? So like someone's accessing this in an area that I don't know automatically revoke that data, right? That's super powerful. That's, that's, I'll tell you what, man, I'm so interested to, I want to have you on again after you go listen to the interview with Tim Berners-Lee because I'm so to. curious. Would yeah. <laughs> I think that's the future and you're, and you're describing it. I'm curious to, to know this trusted, this TDF trusted mm -hmm. data format. Is this something that's like open source or is it proprietary to your company? Like can other people implement this concept or no? So increasingly so. So like here's, so this uh, was born um, in agency. So it's uh, like a domain available 
specification is open. We're contributing to that specification every day. And as an organization, we're committed to increasingly opening more and more of that ecosystem, right? Um, over time, in addition to offering our portfolio on, on, on top and beside that, I want to be really clear on top and beside, right? It's a community contribution effort because we feel like this is important. But yes, you can absolutely expect more of that from us over time. That's exciting, man. No, I, 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 it's, it's very exciting to me. I'm glad I'm not the only one, but I'd love to, to dig in anywhere you want to dig in, of course, other than these areas. I feel like I've uh, talked a lot here. So, No, no. I, the last technical nerdy thing before I ask you a couple leadership questions is just the, when, I, when I was thinking of the fact that like, all of our data, we, we constantly give it away. Like My data is at my bank. My data is at the social media site servers. My data is at everyone else's servers but mine. I'm trying to, um, we're going on this 10-week this, uh, trip like on the road. And so we won't have like internet certain days like on weekends and stuff. And so I was trying to figure out how to get my media to, to come with me. And it is like impossible without being, without yes. pirating. Like yeah. it is like, so it is, I buy movies from Amazon. I've got like hundreds of dollars of movies from Amazon. I can't play them offline. Like I, I don't have access to them. They can't go into like my Plex. Like I can't get media. And so I've, I'm so frustrated as a consumer that my data that I pay customers for is all in their systems and it's never in mine. And I don't actually have access to the data I'm paying. It feels weird. Yeah. It, well, I think... I, I love this topic. At your core, as a human being, it feels weird, right? It's, so set aside technology for a moment, right? So like historical kind of um, genetic predisposition of, of like generational ownership, right? Like um, I have this coffee cup here. It's in my hand. I know it's mine, right? So when you, when you transition to digital assets, we, we moved away for sake of innovation, don't get me wrong, right? I absolutely love to stream my videos on Amazon. It is amazing, right? But, you know, it has swung um, really far in a direction that I think is uh, making more and more people think about it. And I think, you know, the, the, the vocal minority kind of shifts history in many ways as long as they're committed to that future. So while I think you, you see a lot of conversation in the public today around, well, I, what does privacy mean, right? So... And, and ownership mean that ownership mean and, and a lot of people are like well I don't really I'm not too concerned about these organizations having my data they serve me amazing ads and I love that right so great I'm not uh, so I don't fall into that that camp where I like no you can't have that like no that's delivering value to you but what you said is the actual inflection moment in most people I speak to right which is uh, yeah, what, what does your video library look like? You're like, ah, oh, I've collected like 300 videos that I've purchased on Amazon Video. And then I have a conversation about, um, cool, like, where are they at? Like, how do you, like, how do you define having that, right? And then they start thinking about, well, I just, I go into my Roku. I'm like, oh, right. But disconnect your Roku, right? Or like violate some Amazon rule, right? I'm not speaking ill of uh, Amazon, right? Like at any moment, they can take that digital asset offline and ownership becomes very um, akin to your bank not letting you withdraw funds after hours, right? It, it really is parallel to all these conversations we're having around, around sovereignty. And there's, there's no real fundamental reason from a technical perspective for that to be true. What we're witnessing is more individuals like yourself really thinking about that data ownership sovereignty question and demanding 
the ability to have the accessibility, the true ownership, being able to quote unquote, put their hands on these assets to some degree, but, but also still willing to pay for the value that these platforms are providing. I don't imagine a world where you're saying that I want to be able to take that to this device here, but I don't want to pay you anymore, uh, Amazon. You're not saying that, right? You're just saying I've bought that and I would like to use it in a location that I like to frequent um, using a device or a player that is should totally be okay to play a video, right? So I think you know where a lot of the concern was historically was around like some of these organizations and you're seeing the fight today from ads and, the, and Apple taking a more privacy-centric approach is the monetization path and then fending off their moats, right? Well, that's just a change. That's just innovation. You got a bunch of smart people in these companies that will find a way to continue to monetize the amazing service they have while still giving you access and ownership of the data that you've purchased. That future is totally possible. And we're starting to see that come through. That's why I'm so patient with it. Yeah. It's like, I'll get frustrated and then I'll, I'll get frustrated that, you know, it's, I'm frustrated that I've spent this money on these videos that I cannot watch in like a player of my choosing and I can download them, but I have to play them through Amazon's player and I have to like re-download them every 30 days or something of that nature. Exactly. So like if I go on a two month road trip, it's like I'm all of a sudden content planning has become a thing when I already spent $15 <laughs> on the movie. That's right. Like, why can't I just pull it down to my, I bought, I found all this out. Like after I bought this, like for, for a terabyte little drive, you know, yeah. and I was like all excited and I'm like, all right, I'm going to pull all my stuff on it. And then I start like figuring out to actually do it. And I realized I can't. And so I start posting in Reddit and <laughs> People right. are like, you can't ask questions like that or like, you know, and then they, I get some people that were really nice and like DM'd me and they're like, sorry, man, the only options are to download it and let it expire and play your Netflix stuff through whatever allotment that they'll, they don't let you download everything, right? but whatever allotment that they'll have and your Amazon, whatever allotment that, but if you go over here, yeah. you can get everything for free and you can like one click download everything. I'm like, I want to pay for the stuff. And I, I don't want to do the pirating thing. Like, you know, absolutely. I, I want to pay. I already pay, actually, not only do I want to pay, but I've already paid. I've already yeah. paid the $15. Like I have some DVDs at home. That path is pretty straightforward, Yeah, you know, but uh, anyways, but then I get frustrated and I step back and I realize, okay, a couple things are going to happen. Number one, my boy, Elon Musk is working on that Starlink. Yes. Yes. So I'll be able to stream this wherever I can wherever. be in the woods and stream it. And this yeah. whole thing becomes a non-issue because I'll always be able to stream. Yeah. Um, or number two, you know, I, I'll just have to be creative, go to the dollar bin at Walmart and then just copy my physical uh, DVDs onto my, you know, my backup system and I'll be able to watch them whenever I want. Yeah. I mean, you've heard this before, so I'm not going to say anything now that's just um, amazing, but like this is the digital real estate era, right? Where we're defining what that means, where those boundaries are and how to define them. Right. And while in that particular situation, it, um, you have options, right? Like Starlink's going up, I can stream it all the time. But what about healthcare, right? Like uh, you have you have the same camps in healthcare today. You have the camps where it's like, give me all your data. I know best for you. And then you have the tech startups, the health startups are saying um, um, interoperability, data portability. They're saying the things that are truly empowering of the patients. I'm not going to say any names in either camp because I don't want to, uh, you know, everybody's, everybody's, everybody's really trying to strive for patient care. So they just have different philosophies. But never before... Right. Has a patient today had 
had both exact same time, more access, direct access because of the internet and because of engagement in mobile platforms, direct access to broad specialties to improve their health outcomes and health span, never before. And at the same time, not be able to access them because <laughs> my data sits over here. How do I get it to you? I'm gonna call them. They're like, can I send you a fax? And then I just, I lose um, desire to be awake that day because someone said facts to me and I just forget the whole thing, right? Um, it's frustrating, but it's actually for some people, the difference between them getting to a health solution or having a really poor health outcome. And this is the part I spoke kind of to empowering the end users. I said in the beginning, the thing that fires me up the most, right? You own, it's your data, it's your health data, right? You want to monetize it? Do you want to have access to it? Do you want to deliver intelligence to me? Yes, value. At the end of the day, value is the currency by which I'm willing to exchange my USD uh, fiat with you so that we can trade services, right? My, in my particular case, you want to help my health, right? That's the thing, the value, not, not you just storing my data. So I, I believe firmly that these particular industries where there's a lot of acuity around the issue, right? is going to meet this digital real estate world we live in today and the technology out of it to pave a new future. So that, for example, you know, think about, I'll talk generically around technologies like uh, Ethereum and blockchain where that data is yours, it exists in a state that's verifiable and you can authorize access to parties, transport that into healthcare, right? Where my digital asset is my health record and at any given point in time, wherever I go, whether that's a primary care physician or a specialist or a functional medicine doctor, whatever, right? They should be able to gain access to that without any kind of physical intermediary, right? I shouldn't have to phone someone. I shouldn't have to have them fax it or print it or bring it over, right? That is insane. Um, not insane in like people are doing bad things, it's just, it's, it's, it's an era, it's, it's a time where we don't have to do that. So I think um, there's a continuum, right? Some things like you and I just discussed, we're very frustrated about that video access, but we can put up with it for a longer period of time. Let's stack rank our priorities and think about things like <laughs> where now we have healthcare, where like there's demanding needs. We, maybe we can't wait and we shouldn't wait and we should demand more of the industry. And we're certainly thinking about that at Virtue, right? We're working with a number of healthcare organizations, enabling these type of things so that they can share way more freely. And it's happening. We're seeing it happen. Um, we're one solution. We're one part of the framework overall. But we are thinking about these exact problems. That's exciting. And every time I get upset or frustrated, I go start researching it. And I always find out there's people way smarter than me already working on it for like years. <laughs> so uh, that makes me feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, don't you love being a part of the community, right? That's thinking about these things. And that's, that's what gets me up every day, right? Exactly. Dude, I love it. All right. Last question for sure. you here as we wrap up. Uh, what are you learning from a leadership perspective right now? What are you learning as a leader? Yeah. So I will tell you, um, I've always, I've always, you know, just throughout my career, really appreciated decentralization, right? Not having to bring people to a location, work from home. It's always been something that I've always appreciated and to varying degrees of success in various places. But I will tell you the last year and a half has allowed is, you know, force is the wrong word, right? We want to bring this forward, which is 
empowerment is key. Alignment of your key goals and vision and empowering your um, team. Like you're, you're there to give, you're there as a leader, not to um, instruct or tell, right? You're there to say, do is what we're doing the goals clear and do you have what you need fundamentally to achieve it i'm there to unblock the obstacles necessary for the team because i'm not solving everything right there's no heroics in team innovation right there is simply leaders that are willing to empower the team that they genuinely believe are going to achieve the goals right that is absolutely key so in this era we live in today which i hope to some degree, we bring values out of this work from home environment instead of just forcing something back into it now that we are opening back up is just more empathy at the end of the day, right? So everyone, um, you've heard the saying, right? Like, you you know, everyone you see is going through something you don't know about at the end of the day. Really having um, empathetic leadership in the future, I think, is really important. It doesn't necessarily mean you know, people kind of fundamentally don't understand the definitions of these things, right? doesn't mean necessarily that I have been through everything you've gone through, right? But after an alignment perspective, understanding that I've been given the team what, um, to the best of my ability, what they need to achieve the goal, and then understanding as a human being that you may or are going through something, providing that space for them to be able to convey that and taking an adjusted view of that performance is important. Right. There is no black box here. This is not a one and or zero. Right. And as a leader, I think those lessons of which we've used for a long time, you know, degree, it just takes a new priority. Right. Today. And you see it. You see it in organizations today that are innovating at a faster pace than others. You're seeing the things I just said being made a priority inside organizations to achieve the outcomes organizationally they want to. I love it. I love it. And what's what's the call to action as we wrap up? Like, how can people learn more about Virtue? Yeah. Well, I mean, so first off, our website, we have a, a developer platform, uh, virtue.com. You can get to it all from there. Definitely come check us out. Check out our blog that's linked there as well. Um, you can certainly reach out to me directly, or, um, which we can include that in some of the notes afterward. But the call to action is to really think about what we talked about in the beginning, which is rethinking that historical decision for your technical stack and asking yourself, is this addressing the problems of today and tomorrow in an effective way, separating yourself from the budgetary pressures and the prioritization pressures that you're under from an InfoSec perspective, those are going to exist. It's a balance always in organizations between profit and investment in um, the organization. Of course, that's true, but I, I urge everyone to really rethink that. And if you do, I feel strongly that you will come to the conclusion to some degree or some somewhere on the gradient that the data is the common denominator and that the way to future proof and decrease the overall budgetary burden long term is to start adopting data centric approaches to your protection, both proactive and from a reactive mitigative perspective, a data centric approach is really the solution that gives you some more future proofing. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.